those of you that dated or have dated at some point in the past probably had this question come to your mind when you were sort of falling in love with that special person. And the question was like, when do I tell them? When is it appropriate to say, I love you? Like, how how long are you supposed to wait? Is that a good thing to say on the first date? Do you have to wait a year and a half? Like, how, how long are you supposed to wait before you say those three famous words? According to psychology today, not that it's much of an authority, but According to psychology today, you're supposed to wait for at least five dates or two months. So a little tip for those of you who are in that phase where you're not quite sure. Probably some good advice. Might come across as a little weird on the first date. But who knows? Maybe you'll luck out and that'll work well for you. But generally, you wait a little while. And the reason that we wait a little while is because... We don't ever want these three words, I love you, to be trivialized. In fact, they say that they are the most, the three most important words in the English language. I love you. These are significant words. Even in our church, we often sign off and say, you are loved. And people appreciate that. They want this basic reminder that they are Loved. We want to preserve these words. In John chapter 3, verse 16, God declares his love for us. Now, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, John 3.16 is composed of 24 words that communicate God's love for us, God's solution to our sins, and the response that we are supposed to bring to the Lord Jesus as we believe in him and him alone. These are 24 words that changed the world and that can change you and continue to change you as you meditate upon them and reflect upon them. So I thought that because this is such a central passage to the word of God that we would spend the next three services just meditating upon John 3, 16. And we'll kind of break it down into three parts and we'll go word by word and seek to extract the truth that God has for us. So here's how it reads in the English Standard Version. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now I had to look down and read that because I did memorize that in the KJV when I was very young, and it's worded slightly differently, but it captures the essence of the Greek text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 24 words that changed the world. And by the way, as I was reading it, I saw some of you counting on your fingers to make sure there are 24 words. There are. There are 24 words here. And uh, in the English Standard Version... The word for is preceded by a quotation mark, but there's no quotation mark at the end of it. Why is that? Because John 3.16 is part of an extended quotation from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's set in a context, and let me just read the whole context for you. Jesus was doing his ministry, and a Jewish ruler by the name of Nicodemus 
came to him by night, and he had some questions that he wanted to ask of Jesus. Now, in, in John 3, we don't actually read about Nicodemus's conversion, but because we see him at the foot of the cross, helping to take the body down from the cross, I think we can rightly assume that Nicodemus did, in fact, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17 reads, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, the reality is that we're already condemned apart from Jesus. Jesus didn't have to come and say, you're damned, you're condemned, you're all going to hell. That's where we already were before Jesus showed up. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. The next word is already or already lost apart from Jesus, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then verse 19 reads, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Light in the scriptures is a reference to the righteousness of God, the truth of God, and most notably, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Do we not see that time and time again, maybe in our own lives or in the lives of unbelievers? You don't want to hear the truth because when you hear the truth, you're going to be exposed. So you don't want to hear the truth. You want to shut up people that are telling the truth. We see this increasingly in our culture. Don't tell us the truth. Don't proclaim truth. We don't want to know what you Christians believe because it brings what? People get exposed. They're exposed for their sin. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That word in can also be translated as through. What that teaches us is that through God or due to our union with God, notably Christ, we've been abled and enabled to do good works. So there's no cause for arrogance when you come to the light. There's no cause for arrogance. It's not like, well, look at me. I'm so awesome. I'm standing in the light. But you're, you're contributing any spiritual success that you have back to God. So this is the context of John 3, 16, and it's significant. It's an extended statement delivered from Jesus to Nicodemus, but we're going to go back now and kind of dissect verse 16 in particular. And today I would like to just focus in on the first six words, for God so loved the world. This can also be translated for this is how God loved the world. This is like a how-to. This is a word picture of what Jesus, what God did through Jesus to demonstrate his love for us. And I know that if you've heard the same thing over and over again, it might sound kind of cliche. I know about God's love. God loves the world. I've heard it a thousand times. 
might sound kind of cliche, but in actual fact, this is one of the most shocking, if not the most shocking statement ever made in human history. It's the most shocking thing. That God would love the world. Do you have any idea what the world is like? Do you have any idea what God is like? This is a radical statement. For God so loved the world. This, this is more shocking than someone saying, well, the king loved the man that committed treason against him. It's way more shocking than that. I mean, that would be shocking, but it's way more shocking than that. It's way more shocking than, oh, a mother actually loved a man that mercilessly slaughtered her daughter. I mean, that would be shocking, would it not? This is way more shocking than that. For God, do you know who God is? The holy, sovereign creator of the universe that doesn't need us at all? Do you know what the world is like? Rebellious and evil beyond belief, shockingly so? The Bible says, for God so loved the world. This is the foundation of the gospel. And every word is significant. The first word is for. And what this word teaches us is that the gospel is factual. Jesus is about to make a statement of absolute fact. For Nicodemus is like, how do I get saved? How do I get born again? What does that mean? Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? I mean, how is that possible? Jesus makes this historical, factual, objective claim. It is a factual response to Nicodemus' question. And it's a factual response to the question that many people around the world are asking. How do I get to heaven? How can I be made right with the divine creator? Four. And the four, by the way, is going to introduce several questions about God's love. Questions like, how does God love? Questions like, who does God love? And questions like, what even is love? As Nicodemus and many others wrestle with questions in this broader context, trying to understand what does it mean to be born again? Trying to wrestle with like feelings of condemnation. What are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying, did you come to, 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 to condemn me? Because I, I already know something's wrong with me. Nicodemus understood something was wrong. He didn't come because he was a, an academic just interested in writing a thesis on Jesus' life. He obviously knew something was not right in his life. He's wrestling with feelings of condemnation. As they consider Jesus' statement about our propensity towards darkness rather than light, why do I always tend to lean into darkness, even though it sucks the life out of me, even though I can't see in the darkness, even though it robs me of joy and peace? Why do I have this bent toward darkness? As that question swirls through our minds. Why? As we try to understand the work that only God can carry out, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's like, you're a rabbi, you're a great teacher. Like, I'm trying to figure you out. There's something about you. There's something about your message that is different. Jesus says, for, he introduces him to 
the factuality, the historicity, the actuality of the gospel. The gospel is not a message of religious sentiment and drivel. The gospel is historical. It is factual. It's about God's love for us and God's solution through Christ and the call to believe and respond to what God has done for us. And this is a statement that needs to be made time and time again to a lost and dying world and to Christians that sometimes forget it. The gospel is factual, folks. It's factual. It's true. And it's meant to change you and me. And yet so often we drift away from the gospel. And when we think about love, we're more interested in self-love. How often have we preached this? How often have we heard this? That the solution to your problems is to love yourself more. How many t-shirts have been printed with those words on them? Love yourself. Love yourself. That's the solution to your darkness. That's the solution to your lostness. Just love yourself more. Defend yourself. Stand up for yourself. Enjoy your freedom. Fight for your freedom. It's about you. You need to love yourself more. And at the end of the day, (laughs) it just doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. Or we could say, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe God loved the world. I don't believe that Jesus came. Do you know how factual the coming of Jesus is? It's more factual than probably almost any episode from antiquity. We have four different gospel writers. Of course, they're now all in the New Testament. So you might think of them all as one book, but they're not. Matthew's a distinct book from Mark. Mark's a distinct book from Luke. And Luke's a distinct book from John. These are four historical literary documents, all written at different times by different men that all attest to the historicity of a man by the name of Jesus Christ that came and loved the world. But even outside of these events, we have Flavius Josephus recording the life and times of Jesus Christ. We have Tacitus and Finney the Younger. There's all sorts of literary and historical evidence for the man Jesus Christ and his works. We might be tempted to say, I just don't believe it. Or we might think, well, I know God loves me, but surely he doesn't love me that much. Surely he desires something from me, and so we can easily fall into the false religion of good works in order to appease and please God. Now, by the way, Protestant Christians are very much about good works. We very much believe in the necessity of good works as a response to God's grace in our lives, not as a means of getting God's attention in the first place. But it's tempting to fall into the trap that so many religions have to seek God's approval, much like you might seek mine by being really nice to me, or I might seek yours by being really nice to you. It's easy to fall into the trap of seeking to kind of earn God's love because we've been good little boys and girls. And maybe there's some even here like that. In fact, I was talking to a man recently who's kind of on the verge, I think, of professing faith in Jesus. But I think one of his major hang-ups is he still thinks he has to somehow work off his former sins 
by a series of good works, and I'm emphasizing it's by grace, man. It's by grace. It's based upon the love and unmerited favor of God. Four, that means that God did something real through the sacrifice and redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God loves the world he has created, and any definition of love that isn't founded in some way or grounded in the God of love is an inadequate definition of love because God is the initial lover. He's the first lover. He's the extreme lover. He's the truest lover. And so know this, you are loved. You believe that? You just believe it up here or do you actually believe it in here? Have you allowed it to arrest your heart and your emotions and your outlook? Four introduces us to a gospel that is outside of us. For God. That's the second word, God. And this reminds us that the gospel is founded not on us, not on church life, not on religion, but the gospel is founded on God, the creator of all things, for God. This God is omnipresent. He's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. He's all-loving. He's also just and wrathful, and he's merciful. God is love, and all that he is makes his love super, super Super precious. To be loved by me might be of some benefit to you. But to be loved by God is of infinite benefit. If you understand how grand and awesome God actually is, it's mind-boggling, really, for God to love us. This is why it's important for us to study the attributes, the characteristics, and the works of God in Scripture Because the more you lean into your Bible and you see how great and like jaw-dropping God is, the more phenomenal this notion that he would even talk to you would be. Have you ever seen like a a celebrity in public? I don't know, you're, you're, you're vacationing someplace and you see a politician or you see some sort of a movie star or... Even locally, you see, I don't know, the mayor or someone in a position of authority, and you see people kind of like looking at them, and you don't bother going over there because you just kind of assume they're busy. They're not going to want to talk to me. Who am I? When we're around like famous people, we kind of, we're interested, but we don't, we don't go close because we don't, they don't care about little old me. How much greater is God than the mayor, than the greatest celebrity ever? So we can think, well, God, God's not... Why would God be interested in me? This is God. This is the God who transcends not Windsor, not Essex County. He transcends the created universe. (laughs) He is infinite in knowledge and power and might. But that God loves you. I mean, that's a precious kind of love. There are no words that can actually adequately describe this, but the Bible simply says God loves us. God loved 
us. God continues to love us. Think about human love. What's human love based on? Human love is based on fondness for, attraction to, commonality with. That's what human love is based on. I love you because I appreciate you or your personality is you know, easy to get along with or there's some mutual business benefit. Or in marriage, we love, there's a sexual attraction, there's shared interest, there's common desires, etc. I mean, even in church, we come together and we, it's, let's be honest, it's easier to love one another if we agree with one another on the same thing and are pulling in the same direction and have the same outlook on ministry. It's, it's easier to love people that are more in line with where we're at. But if you read the scriptures... God's love is actually by his sovereign choice. Here's what the Bible says in answer to the question, do sinners deserve God's love? No. God loved us first. Romans 5.8 says while, like in the moment, while we were still all sinners, Christ died. While. 1 John 4.9 says, we love because he first loved us. God's love is not deserved. God's love is not a response to our awesomeness. God's love is an initiating love. Now you might think, well, isn't that true of all religion? No. Let me read directly, just as an example, let me read directly from an Islamic source. These are not my words. These are directly from an Islamic source. A man once asked the messenger of Allah, what people does Allah love most? And he said, those who are most useful to other people. End quote. Who does Allah love the most? Those that are most useful to other people. What does that mean? That means that Allah's love for you is dependent upon what you do. But that's not the gospel message. That's true, by the way, in some way, shape, or form of every world religion. But it's not true of the world religion known as biblical Christianity. In Christianity, you are not loved because you were the most useful. We are loved because we are useless apart from Jesus. You were loved because God chose to save you while you were a sinner. So we can praise him that he is the source and therefore he is the guarantee of our salvation. He's the source. I'll say it again. He's the source. And he's the guarantee because his love for us was not earned. Thank God for that. Because I would have lost it a long time ago. He's the guarantee because he chose to love us for God. It's factual. It's founded in God. 
for God so loved. This reminds us that the gospel expresses unearned divine love. So loved, again, is initiating love. Let me describe to you the opposite of that. God so loved. It's not like this. You so did. And so God so loved. It's not you were so good. And so he so loved. It's not you so chose. And so God so loved. It's none of that. It's none of that. Why did God love the world? Wait for it. Think about it. Why did God love the world? Because he did. That's why. Because he did. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. Right place, right time, right attitude. This is what drives humble worship. That God so loved us. If I didn't earn it, how do I respond to it? Well, we could do what Judas did. Judas heard it. Judas saw it. Judas was aware of the love of God through Christ in a more real, tangible, touchable way than any of us ever have experienced. He was with the God-man, Jesus Christ. But he rejected it. He rejected it. He, he, He thought... Well, there's safety and security in religion. How do we know that he was into religion? Because that's where he went when he was seeking forgiveness after having realized he'd committed a grievous sin. Or we could surrender to it like Paul. You know what's interesting about Paul and Judas? Paul was actually a worse sinner than Judas prior to his denial of Christ. For months and years, Paul was an atrocious individual, known as Saul at the time, sending out death squads in Nazi-like fashion to slaughter Christians. Are you kidding me? Is that not a man beyond redemption? What's Judas doing? Oh, he's taking a few nickels out of the offering plate. Not exactly the thing to do, but you weigh them out. Which one's worse? Slaughtering Christians or stealing a few nickels out of the offering plate? And yet when Paul encounters Jesus, boom. He's on his hands and feet. He's on his hands and knees. He surrenders. He's humbled. He goes into training. His life is radically altered. That's the proper response to God's initiatory love. Or we should worship 2 Chronicles 7.3. The Israelites are speaking there of God's steadfast love, which is spoken of many times in the scriptures. Steadfast love, and they are 
driven to worship. So when you think about God's love, it's more than just, wow, that's really cool. This, this is encouraging. We must give our lives to him, as Paul did, the proclamation of the gospel and Christian ministry. We must worship him as the Israelites of old understood. These are the proper responses to love. This Christmas, we have for God so loved the world. We're focusing in on the love that God has for us. How are you going to respond to that? I've just been thinking a lot about this as I try to every year coming into this Christmas season that is, I almost wish, wish Christmas was like in February on a short, regular, plain old weekend. Because the fact that we have time off and the fact that it's kind of a stat holiday, we, we do all this other stuff. We, we hang out with family, and that's great. I enjoy that. We, we host parties and we decorate our homes, but I just increasingly think these things are so, so distracting. They almost make the celebration of God's love more difficult because our minds are filled with meetings and dinners and banquets and concerts and events and food to buy and food to prep. And it's a distraction. And I, I do it too. You can go to the, the family Christmas party, the church Christmas party, and you come in and you pray and you laugh and you eat. But really, there's nothing about Jesus in all of that. Really? We're not celebrating Jesus' birth. Let's be honest. We could do the same thing in March and we wouldn't call it Christmas. We could do the same thing in July, and we wouldn't call it Christmas. We could do the same thing on our birthdays, which we do. We celebrate, we give presents. It's not really about Jesus. Let's be honest. Most of what we do at Christmas is not about Jesus. Can we just like agree to that right now? You know, we're in church. We're supposed to be honest. It's not about Jesus. It's like Jesus has given us a couple weeks off to eat and get fat and spend a lot of money. And I'm not opposed to eating and getting fat as long as you lose the weight after and giving presents and all of that. These are great and beautiful things. But it's so easy to have Christmas after Christmas just roll by and realize like we're not, we're not really we're not really celebrating God's love at all. We're not really thinking about it. But in the day-to-day throes of our lives, if we're going to really honor the God that so loved us, the response should be, I'm going to serve him. Period. I'm going to worship him. Period. I am going to be deliberate about those things. I am going to be conscientious about those things to the honor and glory of God. For... It's factual. God, it's founded in God, so loved. The gospel expresses God's unearned love. The world, the gospel, thank God for this, is global. The gospel is global. What is the world? Well, ever since Genesis 3, the world equals a sinful world. Not a sinless world. A sinful world. Think about that. God, great in mercy, is loving a sinful world. This is the God that loves the sinner. 
This expansive love, of course, is being fulfilled to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where God says, go into all the world to his disciples and preach the gospel. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's like preach it in Windsor, preach it in Essex County, preach it in Ontario, preach it in Canada, preach it in North America, preach it in the Western Hemisphere, preach it everywhere, preach it around the world. You think, well, that's normal. It's not normal historically. It's not normal. Okay, it's not normal for people to want to love on and care for people that aren't even in their own ethnic group. This is why we see racism thousands of years into human history. People still, I'm white, you're black, I don't like you. Or I'm Indian, you're white, I don't like you. Or you don't dress like me, or you don't smell like me, or you don't eat my food, or you don't live in my country. I don't like you. We see this in global politics. People are naturally at odds with other people. Okay, this is human nature. You're never going to fix that apart from the gospel. People are innately racist. They just are. And then if they don't have anybody around to hate that isn't in their ethnic group, they just hate each other. And if there's no one around, they hate their spouse. We just naturally hate other people. That's who we are. And even in, in, in Jewish ears in the first century, they were so, so used to these words, you are the chosen people. You are the chosen people. You are the chosen people. You are the descendants of Abraham. And they were. And they were God's chosen people. So this radical message is actually God so loved the world. Say what? God so loved the world. What? You mean just like all the Jews living around the world? No, God so loved the world. So now for 2,000 years, we're kind of used to this, but this is radical to the first century ear. We're now living in the period of the Gentile ingathering where non-Jews en masse are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessings of Abraham would go global. In the old days, under the old covenant, yeah, there are rare times when Gentiles are converted into biblical Judaism. Names like Uriah the Hittite. That's not a Jewish background. Uriah the Hittite. Rahab from Jericho, that's not Jewish. There's times when Gentiles, or Jews, Gentiles rather, came into the Jewish nation, and God, of course, encourages his people to accept the foreigner, the alien, and the stranger. It's like, come and see, come and see. If you come and see, you're welcome to stay. Very rarely is it go and tell. One, one notable exception of that would be our old friend Jonah, who was terrible at it, but God used him nonetheless. But mostly it's come and see, come and see, come and see. But in the New Testament, it's go and tell, go and tell, go and tell. It's get out there, get going, get your bikes, get your trikes, get your cars, get your planes, get your boats, and get going. Get out there and share the gospel with the world. The gospel has gone global, and thank God for that, because best as I can tell, I'm not Jewish I don't know if I have any Jewish blood in me. I certainly don't have any Jewish blood in me for the last several generations. And most of you are the same. But thank God that through the global presentation of the gospel, we now participate spiritually in the blessings of Abraham. 
and certainly in the blessings that come to us through his great, 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 on and on and on, grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received blessings from God. But keep in mind, this is more than just, oh, the gospel went from Jew to Gentile. This is the gospel went to sinners because the world is sinful. So brothers and sisters, we've heard these words for God so loved the world. How do we respond? Well, may we first of all receive these words from God. I love you. May you receive those words from God. I have a suspicion that some of you have not really received those words from God. You've heard them. You know, the little bones in your ears have processed them. Your mind has translated the sound into concepts. Okay, God is love. God loves me. But you haven't really heard this from God. I love you. It should make you weep. It should make you filled with joy. It should correct so many of your anxieties and your concerns. Many of you have not even heard those words from your parents or you heard them, but you didn't see them in action. Many of you probably haven't heard them from your loved ones for a long time. Well, that's just not our family. We don't say that. You haven't heard those words. And sometimes you wonder, am I, am I loved? Am I lovable? You hear these words from God. I love you. For God so loved the world, you're part of that. For God so loved the world. Allow that to affect and influence the way that you think of yourself, your value, your innate worth as an image bearer of God. And then let that spill over into your worship of God. And let us then demonstrate the love of God to others. We should be a people above all others that love the world. That love sinners that love people outside of our ethnic group. No more, well, those are the missionaries. They do that. And we're the locals. We just hang back. We're all missionaries. Because the world lives in our neighborhoods. And sinners live around us, people yet to be transformed into sainthood. We are missionaries to the world right here. So let's receive these words from God. I love you. And let's demonstrate that kind of love as best as we can to sinners and to the world around us, to the honor and glory of the King of Kings. For God so loved the world. That means for God so loved you.